So if you have a Bible, get it open, get it, get it ready to go, because we're going to be going again here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> so the text technically is Matthew 26, 28, as I like to sometimes do. I will mention it before the end. But what we're talking about in this series on covenants, today we're talking about cutting a covenant. What does it mean to cut a covenant? Oftentimes in the Old Testament it says they made a covenant, but that's actually a mis- interpretation, it should say they cut a covenant. Covenants are cut, not made. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at covenant succession and what it means that God doesn't save merely individuals, but households. Nothing controversial there, I'm sure. And and what we're really doing, last week, we looked at promises. So if you missed it, it it would be worth going back and listening to uh, that all of this covenant theology is based upon the promises of God. And these are just the highlights. Uh, Jared is going to be teaching a class on covenant theology Uh, in the fall, and he's going to dig much deeper than what we're going to cover in these five or six sermons. But this is just to give you a taste. Uh, Covenant is a word we use a lot around here. There's been a lot of questions about it, and hopefully this series just answers some of those big pressing questions. So before we open the text this morning, the whole text, Genesis to Revelation, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness, your covenant with us, Lord, Uh, your, your grace and your condescension, Lord, to cross the chasm between Uh, between us, both because you are the creator and we are creatures, but also because the chasm of sin that we brought upon ourselves and cursing that we brought upon ourselves and separation that we brought upon ourselves. We thank you for Christ and the fact that he fulfills all your promises, that, Lord, he uh, fulfills the covenant stipulations for us, Lord, and that he is here with us now. We thank you that you are the Emmanuel, and we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive instruction from you. We need um, conviction, and we need comfort in equal measure. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, and amen. Now, as we covered last week, the Bible is divided into two portions, two covenants, the Old and New Testament, testament meaning covenant. Now, these are covenants of promise, as we covered. God graciously enters into with man covenants of promise, the central promise being, I will be your God and you will be my people. The comfort of the covenant is that you are God's and God is yours. You are his and he is yours. That is the central promise. That's the central reality. When you enter a covenant with the Lord, That is the nature of the relationship. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. And he doesn't belong to any other people. He belongs to you. Now, in Exodus 3, before giving his name, in verse 14, God answers another question of Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We're all familiar with this passage. This is the great I am passage. I'll just mention offhand. But there's more going on in this section than we realize. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you. Moses asks God who Moses is before he asks God who God is. And God's answer to the first question is like his answer to the second. God's second answer is, I am who I am. His first answer is, I will be with you, or I am with you. We might think that I will be with you does not really answer Moses' question. Who am I? Moses asks about himself. Moses, God, uh, he asks about himself, Moses. God replies to this question by speaking of himself, God. 
God more than answers Moses' question. Who is Moses? He is the man with whom God is. That's who Moses is. Moses asks God, who am I? You are the one I am with. That is God's answer. God has covenanted to stand with Moses in his confrontation with Pharaoh. Everywhere that Moses goes, God goes too. That, that's what we're talking about. Moses' identity, Moses' uh, being, who, who and what is he? He is the one with whom God goes with. That is very helpful. Theologian Peter Toon puts it this way. Yahweh is God with his people. That's his name. He's God with his people. The great Emmanuel. That is what we're learning about Christ. But Christ, again, wasn't becoming something. Christ was revealing something. Christ came into the world to show us who the triune God has always been. And who has he always been? He has always been the God with his people. Then Moses asks in verse 13 the name of God so that he can report it to his people, Israel. And the I am verse in 14 connects with uh, God with Israel as the I am in verse 12 connects God to Moses. God is the one with his people. The essence of the covenant is that God is ours and we are his. For God is not only present in the world, he is covenantally present he is with his creatures to bless them and to judge them. He's not a passive character. If, you, if, if God goes everywhere that you go, he's not just idly standing by, uninterested in what he's watching. He's, he's very interested in what's going on. He's interested in what you're doing. He's interested in what you're saying. He's interested in how you're doing it, how you're saying it. And he is there, and he will bless, and he will curse. How could you do otherwise? He's not going to simply passively go along with you. Right? There, there are many people who believe in that kind of passive God, but that is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of covenant. He goes with us to bless us or to curse us. The book of Deuteronomy is the book of covenant. That's what the whole book is about. It's one giant covenant. <laughs> it, it, and it's broken into five parts, and five parts appear again and again throughout it. I'm not going to bog us down in that. If you'd like to know all about the five parts, you should join Jared's class. But the book of Deuteronomy explains to us how a covenant is structured. The whole book is a covenant document. Part of the covenant structure are covenant sanctions, which are blessings and curses for covenant faithfulness. God says, I'm entering into a covenant with you, therefore do this and not that. Right? If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will curse you. If you do that, I won't bless you. I'll curse you for that. And it's important for Israel to know that if this God is going to go with them, if he's going to live in their midst, there, there are certain things that require certain things of them. Now, that requirement doesn't create the relationship. The relationship that God creates with them necessitates they behave a certain way. This is why later on, when they're wandering around, they, they, there are certain things they realize they can't do in the camp. They can't go to the bathroom in the camp. The bathroom has to be outside of the camp. Why? Because God walks around in here, and we can't just do whatever we want on the ground. And, 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 and that is a helpful illustration, right, for how the law works, how the sanctions work, how the ethics work. You can't just say whatever you want in this camp, because in this camp, God lives here. God is present with us. And, and, and this reality it is how all of us in the New Covenant live all the time, and it's probably the first thing that we forget. Right? When you're, you were sitting there this morning eating your English muffin, the Lord God was there with you. Right? When, you. when you were talking to your children, he heard you. And he either liked what you said or he didn't. He's, he's not far off 
And he's not passive. He's not uninterested in your life. He goes with you. The covenant law, the covenant ethics, is, is found in Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 26. Okay? There are more than 10 laws. There are many laws. It's found, it's found in its entirety, the law of God, in chapters 5 through 26. The central section of that covenant defines how God's people are to live so that they can be a holy nation. God's relationship with his people is an ethical relationship. They must be righteous to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Now, I'm going to say that again because this is where a lot of us get very confused. You do not have to obey them to have the relationship. You have to obey them in order to enjoy the blessings of the relationship. Okay? Imagine, imagine a marriage where the husband is abusive to the wife all the time, verbally and physically. Right? Are they going to enjoy the blessings of a marriage? No. How could they? Because th- there's all this unethical behavior. Their ethical behavior didn't create the marriage. It's what keeps the marriage happy. It's what keeps the marriage whole. It's what keeps the marriage going. And, and we often think that this is merely uh, something about the God of the Old Testament. right? He was a very ethical guy. He cared a lot about what you did. But now we serve the God of grace, and he doesn't care. But then you have these paths. This is why covenant theology is so important. The continuity between the Old and New Testament is so important. Jesus says things like this that modern Christians have no idea how to interpret in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, okay, so it's works righteousness then. No, 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 let's go back, let's go back. You didn't create this relationship by what, you're, by what you did or didn't do. But if you're going to be in this marriage with the living God, if you are the bride of Christ and he is the husband, and you're going to stay in fellowship, you're going to stay in this relationship, it matters very much what you do. If you love God, you will obey him. The love of God is the motivator for obeying him. Right? Just like I love my wife, and so I talk to her a particular way. Right? I, I do or do not hit her because I love her. The love is the motivating factor. And, and obeying the vows that I made to her is about loving her or not loving her. Love is the motivation. Love is always the motivation. But it really does matter what you do. And, and that's what this whole topic is about, because so many modern Christians think that they live in this fairy tale world where it does not at all matter what they do, because grace abounds, right? I, I love when, when, when I get questions like that, and, and, I, and it puts me on a footing with Paul. Oh, so you're saying that grace, like, we should just go on sinning because grace abounds? I'm like, Paul got this question, too, and it's in the scriptures. We can go and look at it. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's very important that you understand that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> now, this whole idea <laughs> is an oft-forgotten portion of the New Testament. And I'm going to read this quote, and I don't want to get distracted by this, but I think it's hilarious that in the modern church, everybody is dinkering around with the book of Revelation, specifically. And yet, the book of Revelation ends with this comment. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Well, first off, if I, I, I just had a conversation about this on Friday with some, some brothers. I am a little terrified of attempting to interpret this particular book because it's the only book in the entire Bible that comes with a special warning about not adding to it or taking away from it 
or what will happen? The the fruit of the tree of life will be taken out of my mouth. Now, that punches all kinds of holes in modern evangelical theology. What do you mean that you're going to take away the fruit out of your mouth? What does that mean, first off? Second off, when you say add to it, you mean like when I sit down and I watch CNN and I interpret the book of Revelation through, through what's happening in the news? Is that adding to it? Hmm. Or you have uh, all kinds of preterists. Don't even get me started. Preterists are people who think largely that all of, everything that's occurred in the book of Revelation has already happened. Okay? Now, they're messing around with it just the same. Now, I, if Scripture interprets Scripture, and this, right, all Scripture is equal... Now, isn't this warning in the book of Revelation, can't we then apply it to the whole book? Hmm. <laughs> so those who go around messing with the word of God, taking from, from it or adding to it, will have the fruit of life taken out of their mouths. Now, now, doesn't that add a little something when you sit down to interpret it? Okay? In fact, when I was putting this together, I'm, I'm going to now make a plaque out of this and hang it where I can always see it from my seat in my office, because it fills me with fear. And, but that, that, that is what it's supposed to do, fear and trembling. We're supposed to take these things and understand how weighty they are. How weighty is the scripture? Will you, right? Don't add to it and don't take, take away from it. You're making life and death decisions. Now, in the Bible, a covenant can only be established and sealed by oath which usually involves an oath-taking ceremony, like a sacrifice or circumcision or baptismal vows. Whenever you enter into a covenant, there is always a ceremony. Um, one does not simply walk up to an unbeliever and say, you are now in the covenant of the Lord. Like, even that is a ceremony, but that, right, it requires more than that. If, if two people want to get married, do we just say, oh, okay, cool, you're married? No, think of all the expense, all the effort, all the ritual that goes into it. Why? Because we understand when you're promising some, you're making these kinds of lifelong vows to one another, it requires a certain amount of ceremony. And in, in, when covenants are made in the Old Testament, they, there's always ceremony involved. When covenants are made in the New Testament, there are, there's always ceremony involved. The oath is so important in a covenant that the word oath is often used as a synonym for covenant. As in Deuteronomy 29.12, now this is from the NASB. It's a different translation than the ESV because I liked it better. It says, so that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today. So the word oath and covenant are synonymous. When you're entering into a covenant, you are making promises. Right? That you don't get the water for free. You got you to stand up and you got to think about what you're doing. You got to think about what you're entering into. And there are things that are required. of You have to promise to do certain things. Now, an oath is self-maledictory. That's, I promise I will keep the big words to a minimum, because even now I have a hard time even pronouncing. But essentially what it means, and, and when you enter a covenant, you're making an oath that states, if I don't fulfill the oath I just made, I will be put to death. It's self-maledictory. I'm calling upon myself the curses of heaven, the curses of God, the curses of this covenant, if I do not fulfill this covenant. The curse of the covenant with God is always death. It's always death. If you do not fulfill the covenant with the Lord, you will die. Many Christians may not realize that a curse is part of the traditional Christian wedding vows, as an example. Did you know that you're calling death upon yourself when, you, when you're vowing to making your marriage vows? I always take 
kids through this with their pre-marriage counseling because I want them to understand exactly what it is they're swearing to. Till death do us part. That is something we still say in our marriage vows. It, what it means is until death. It includes the idea that nothing but death can end the covenant, implying that the curse of death on the one who is disloyal to the oath. Okay? It, only death can separate. And when you separate people who have been joined together in marriage, I know that this is hard to hear, you're, you're, you're putting to death, a, right? You took two people and you made one being. That one being now, that one flesh that they have become, has to be put to death in order to separate them. And that is why divorce is, is, is such a difficult subject. It's not that it's never <laughs> okay. That's another thing. Scripture clearly makes it, says, yes, there are times where it must happen. But every time it happens, whether it should or shouldn't, there is a death involved. You're killing something. That's what we're promising to. Only death is going to separate you and me, baby. Now, and that, that idea doesn't seem as sexy, I think, when you've got all the beautiful flowers and food and all the sunshine and all the glory. You're not usually thinking of like, oh, only, only shedding blood is going to make this end. Right? That doesn't go over as well. That's <laughs> all, the we- all the wedding sermons I would give, it's probably better I don't. But I, I just imagine ruining all kinds of weddings all the time by trying to add a little levity. It doesn't usually go over well. I think I'll keep not doing it. Till death do us part. Marital love is self-sacrificial. There is no basis for dissolving the relationship except uh, when one of those who took the vows betrays it and undermines the whole relationship. Sickness, poverty, unpleasantness, none of these things can make it end. It doesn't matter how unpleasant the person is. It doesn't matter how sick they've become. It doesn't matter how poor you've become. What you're saying is that nothing will separate us but death itself. And this is what we, what, what we say at every wedding. This, when you have a Christian wedding and you have these vows, that is what we're talking about, a life and death decision that you are making. The wedding illustration is especially appropriate because God's relationship with Israel is compared to the relationship of a husband and wife. Not just compared, but it is the relationship of a husband and wife. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, Ephesians 5, both of it describe the fact that God has married his people. So long as Israel is faithful to the love of the covenant, and faithful here does not mean sinless perfection, that's important to note, but rather repentant faith and love. God will never leave or forsake her if she comes to him in repentance and love. And, and the, the closing of the Old Testament, all of the, the, the major prophets, every, what, what, you, one way of understanding their books is that they are essentially prosecuting a divorce. God says, you know, this woman has been nothing but unfaithful. I'm, I'm through with this. I can't do it anymore. There's no hope for her, and he divorces her. And that's what all the prophets are coming to them and saying, listen, you can burn all the lands you want. You can, do all, you can wear all the funny clothes. You can do all the rituals. You can attempt to make it look a certain way as much as you want. But your heart is far from him. You do not love him. You do not live in repentance with him, and he is now going to divorce you. Why? Because Israel has entered into a life-and-death covenant with God. Now, what happens? What, what does Jesus come to do? Jesus comes to restore the bride that, the Lord, that Yahweh had divorced in the Old Testament. He pursues her unto death and brings her back. And, and that's the story of Scripture. And that, that's why when we make vows on our wedding days, we're, we're entering into this grand story of, of humanity and the Lord God in history. Love, like faith, 
is meaningless without the corresponding actions. If a man loves a woman, and this is what we're going through in modern culture, if a man loves a woman and doesn't want to marry her, what do we think of his love? If a man loves a woman but doesn't want to enter into a lifelong pact with her, saying, yes, I take responsibility for you and any children we may have, if a man doesn't do that, do we believe that he loves her? Well, no. It's ridiculous. And yet we live in this world where I feel like this is like, <laughs> this is, the liberal people have dis- discovered marriage. Um, I, I saw this, this article about these young women who went away and had this retreat because Roe versus Wade was overturned, and they made this pact with one another that they were going to stop sleeping with men unless the men entered into a contract with them. <laughs> and then they wrote up a contract, and they submitted it to a lawyer, and the lawyer had to explain to these millennials that this is called marriage. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny, isn't it? And yet... It's the kind of funny that brings tears to the eyes. And, and, and it's like, yeah, the hookup culture is, is I, I'm actually as excited that that is going away as I am that abortion is going away. Because all these young people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they're inventing marriage. All right, I'm sorry. See, this is how I get distracted. Okay? This is why covenants are so important. A man says, I love you to a woman. He stands up in front of witnesses, and he says, only death is going to keep, prevent me from taking care of you. Nothing else will. Only death. And this is what God, the, the nature of the relationship God has entered into with man. Therefore, to rebel against the living God in covenantal unfaithfulness means that one chooses death. To rebel against God's covenant means that you are choosing death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for that day that you eat it, you will surely die. What happens? You die. It's the only stipulation. There's one rule. Don't eat that tree or death comes. Excuse me. Now, conversely, if Adam continued in obedience, what would have he been given? He would have been given life. We, we have a hard time understanding these various trees, but there's a curious thing that occurs that gives us a little understanding as to what the tree of life was. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. They had to immediately block Adam from eating of the tree of life because if he ate it, he would have lived forever. And if he lives forever, he can't die and be resurrected. He can't be redeemed. Right? This is why, like, if, if you have a fallen man who eats an apple and lives forever, he becomes a vampire. That's what he becomes. Okay? A blood-sucking vampire. And you can't redeem that. If Adam had eaten of that, it would have all, the story would have been very different. But they're like, no, 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 keep him away from that tree. Now, God originally said, all the trees in this garden are yours. Just don't eat of this one. Now, he says you own all these trees. Now, there's some speculative thing here. What was the intent of the tree of life? What was the intent of it? In fact, where is it now? Revelation 22, 1 through 2. I'm not going to add or take away. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree has become an orchard. 
an orchard where we will go and live. And, and somehow we will make a poultice out of the leaves, and, we, and it, what we will do is heal the nations. Now the resurrection of Christ, the second Adam, bestows this eternal life, where the sin of the first Adam brought death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam gave us death, Christ gives us life. Adam took the tree. We had to be kept from the tree in Adam. In Christ, we are given not just the tree, but an orchard. An orchard of, of trees that, whose fruit give life. Now, covenantally, Adam was dead in his sins because he violated God's covenant sanctions. The only hope was another covenant, one established on, different, on a different basis altogether. Adam made a life and death decision to eat the fruit and violate the first covenant bringing increased and bloody toil to himself, to his wife, separating himself from his wife, from his God, from his land, from, from other men, as we see in their children. What's the very first thing that happens in the first generation brought to Adam and Eve? Murder, right? There's all this blood. There's all this separation. There's all this bloody turmoil that Adam brings into the world. God slew animals to cover over the blood that Adam had shed, the death that he had shed, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So animals had to die now to cover Adam's sin. What Adam brought into the world, he chose death, not just for himself, but for everyone around him, everything around him. Blood is synonymous with the life of creatures, Genesis chapter 9, verse 4 through 5. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for, for, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. When, when I say, till death do us part, I am swearing my blood to my wife. It's a blood pact that I am making. My life is in my blood. And, if I, and, and the only thing that's going to separate us is the shedding of blood. That's what we're talking about. When we're talking about Christ's blood, what is it? What does it do? What is its function? Why do we care, right? I mean, why doesn't he just say, I forgive you? Just do the cross a couple times and everything's hunky-dory. No, he, ha- he, he has come and he has taken his blood, which is his very life, and he has poured it out. And when we're talking about entering into a covenant with that person, what kind of covenant are we entering into? If it's cut in his own blood. Cutting is a theme throughout covenant theology because covenants are established upon life and death oaths. The term cut in Hebrew is karat. It's used to refer to the making of covenants. Often in the Old Testament, the phrase translated, they made a covenant. Every time you see that phrase, circle it, cross out the word made, and write the word cut. They cut a covenant. Now, the reason for this is in the ancient Near East in the scriptures and in extra-biblical writings, we find out that the covenant rituals included the slaughter of animals in some fashion. As was read for us today, what did, Adam, or what did Abraham and God do with the animals? They cut them in half, except for the birds, and they laid them out as a path, and then they were supposed to walk down the middle. And what they're, they're saying is like, thus to us if we don't fulfill this covenant. Look at, these, look at all this blood and death on either side of us. We're going to walk down the middle of this, and what we're promising is that this is what's going to happen to us if we do not keep this covenant. That's how they would make covenants in the Old Testament. Could you also, again, I 
could you imagine if I suggest a wedding like that? Now, unless you just put up the, like, you know, the buffet tables on either side <laughs> with like the cooked meat. But I don't think that quite gives the same sense. But could you imagine your father walking you down, or a father walking a daughter down the aisle of chopped up animals? You're like, oh, that's beautiful. No, I think flowers probably work better. But this is how they made covenants in the Old Testament. The other way that they would do it, because there's more than one way, is that they would make covenants with one another and then sacrifice an animal to God and sit and eat it. So the animal is cut up for the same reason. We are now going to chop up this animal and, and, and cut it and spill its blood, signifying the oath that we're making to one another. And then we're going to sit down and we're going to eat this thing because this covenant gives us life. This covenant, we're unified at this table. We are here. We are present. This occurs in Genesis 26. I don't have enough time to read it like I was originally going to. But Genesis 26, verses 28 through 31, there, this happens. They make covenants, and then what they do is they cut up animals and eat them together, signifying the covenant that they've made. Now, in either case, whether you're walking through the middle of dead animals or you're sitting down and having a meal, an animal is cut in order to signify that a covenant is made. That's why they call it cutting covenants, because you cut something when you make a covenant. You have a big old knife, and you're like, all right, let's make a covenant. What are we going to chop? What living thing are we going to chop up to signify that we're making this life and death promise to one another? Now, cutting comes into the covenant language in other ways. Psalm 37.9 says, For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Exodus 31.14 and 15, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, let's think about this for a second. Because usually when we hear the phrase cut off, we think it's removed. Right? But if you had to make a covenant where you walk down the middle of a bunch of dead animals, and then later they say you're going to be cut, cut if you don't fulfill the Sabbath regulations. You think of that bloody stump of an animal, and you're like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me, and so I'm going to keep the Sabbath. Right? This is why they use the word cut the way they do when they're talking about covenant faithfulness, because they want to call to mind all the chop, chop, choppy they had to make, do in order to make the covenant in the first place. Because I, I don't know about, see, we, we live in a very different world. Very different world. Right? I, when is the last time you got a chunk of dead animal and had to chop it up? Right? You wouldn't even know where to start. It's like the word backstrap. What does the word backstrap mean? Because somebody gave me backstrap and I thought they gave me really bad meat. It turns out it's actually really nice meat. It's just the, the, the name that butchers give it when they are trying to speak in code. I recently started spatchcocking chickens for the barbecue, by the way. Thank you, Ebis, for the barbecue on your, everyone's behalf. But this requires you literally cutting the spinal cord out of the animal, flipping it over, and leaning on it until you hear a pop. Now, this has changed in my mind a little bit my interaction with the food that I'm eating, right? How could it not? And so this experience, if you were to say to me, if you don't fulfill this covenant, I'm going to spatchcock you, I would suddenly live in a little more fear. Right? That's, that's a little scarier than just, oh, I'm going to cut you off. But in, in the Old Testament mind, when they're talking this way, that they're calling to mind the bloody business they had to do in order to make the covenant. They want people to think of that. Now, theologian O. Palmer Robertson, the gateway drug for many covenantal theology, much of it. Many people didn't know anything about covenant, then they read O. Palmer Robertson, which is a funny name anyway. It's kind of memorable. And then, and then bam, you're into covenant theology. 
So be very careful about the books you read. But he defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's a good definition. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. We don't make the rules. We are told the rules. And then what God does is he, he chops up things or tells us what to chop up in order to enter into the covenant. Levitical priests received the law, received instructions, and then had to do a lot of chopping in order to keep the covenant with the Lord God. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now, the phrase translated to make a covenant, as I have said, is to cut a covenant. Animals were cut in the making of covenant or renewing of covenant. The Ten Commandments are cut into stone. It's not not a coincidence that they use that word. On Pentecost, the men who heard uh, St. Peter's um, sermon were what? Cut to the heart. Again, that's not, a, that's not a coincidence. Israel is cut off of the olive branch so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. This is very covenantal language, and it doesn't simply mean remove. Okay? It's, not, it's not a TV dinner where you're removing the cellophane top. Right? Oh, we're going to just pull that off. No. Right? What, ha- right? what happens when you take a, a limb off of a tree? The bigger the limb, especially. What happens when you're going to spatchcock a chicken? It involves a lot, a lot of gross bone snapping, right? It's, you're ripping something out of it. it. It's not, it's a messy business. Now, the presence of signs in many of the biblical covenants also emphasize this cutting. Think about circumcision. It's literally to cut someone. That's not also an accident. There's blood involved in making covenants. We are baptized in the Lord's death, it says. Uh, The um, Passover meal is what? You're sacrificing a lamb that that represents your salvation. So so all the covenant language has this word cut. There's some cutting involved. Now, Moses' wife, who is not an Israelite, makes a very interesting comment about Israel and its, and its tribes, its people, its God. She can see that this is a very bloody group of people. In Exodus uh, chapter 4, verse 25, it says this, Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You, Moses, have come into my house and you are a bridegroom of blood. Because you brought with you this God, you brought with you this people, this people that, don't, that, that make life and death vows and chop up a lot of things to demonstrate the fact that you're super serious about what you're saying. Right? It's, it, it is a bloody business being an Israelite. And, and I think that there is something there that Zipporah sees that she doesn't like, but it's helpful to see how unbelievers should see us. Right? We are intense people. We should be zealous people. We should be hardcore people. Why? Because the covenant we're making with our God is one that we're making in life and, blood, life and death oaths to one another. Why are we so serious about marriage? Because it's something that you enter into and only slaughter can get you out of it. And this is what we do not understand about covenant theology. Oh, this idea of covenant theology. Let's think about it and let's talk about it. It's this very abstract idea. Right up until you have to slit a lamb's throat chop it in half, and walk down the middle of it. <laughs> but we're like, oh, you know, that's not, that's very Old Testament, right? Come on, Mike. Except Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, holds up a cup and says, what, a cup, and says this is the blood, my blood, of the covenant. It's serious what we're doing. 
When we're making oaths to one another, when we're making vows to one another, when we're having the living God in our midst, it's serious. It's life and death. I'm really glad we don't circumcise the way Sephora does, by the way. I'm just going to say that. I don't, I, I don't suggest this is the method. Okay. Now, just as a bride and groom interchange rings as tokens and pledges of their constant faith and abiding love until death, right? That is what happens when you're, when you're getting baptized. That's what happens when we're exchanging cups and, and torn bread. We're making this, we have these symbols that, that recognize the, the death, the blood, the cutting that went in to having God as our God and being his people. Now, everyone who is baptized should count the cost of what they are committing themselves to, first off. Secondly, they ought to be reminded regularly of the bloody business that they have entered into. The weight of God's glory and presence in our midst is something that is very serious and should fill us with awe and should fill us with fear. It is a matter of life and death. And, and this is a verse that all, these two verses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 to 20, are ones that you and your children should memorize. Because when Christ holds up the cup, this is what he's talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 to 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast him, for he is your life and length of days. We're not talking about a relationship. Okay? Throw, take that word and chuck it. It does you no good. What you're talking about is life and death. What you're talking about are blood oaths. That sounds more serious than a relationship. A relationship sounds like the kind of thing you get into on eHarmony. Okay? That, right? I have relationships with people on Facebook. When it comes to the living God, what it is is it's a matter of life and death. There's no one on Facebook I have that kind of relationship with. Okay? And so the word relationship does us no good. When you're talking about these things, you're talking about life and death decisions. And, and Deuteronomy says, today, it's present. It's not something that happened in the past. Today, what we've set before you is life and death, Christ or chaos. Right? Are you going to eat at his table or the table of demons? Are you going to die to yourself and, and put on Christ? Or are you going to continue to walk in your own ways, doing your own will, seeking your own life? Now, the covenant signs of Yahweh include blood since our fall in Adam because his covenant unfaithfulness is sin. It's a matter of blood. It's a matter of life and death. The covenant of redemption, then, is a covenant of blood as well. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life that's in it. And again, this is not an Old Testament idea, strictly. It doesn't live in the past. Here's what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we talk about God's grace, and we talk about what he has accomplished for you, and what is it that he had to accomplish for you in order to be yours and to have you as his own. He had to obey unto death the shedding of his own blood. There was no other way. And so when you're entering into a covenant with, with the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a matter of life and death, his. And then so then it becomes, therefore, a matter of your life and death. 
Are you going to take up the cross and follow? Are you going to put off the old self and put on the new self? Are you going to put yourself to death and follow him or not? It is serious what we're talking about. Now, as always with the triune God, there's a massive twist. And, and, and all this front-loading here is so that we can even on a small scale begin to understand what happened in, in Genesis 15. Because Genesis 15 it, it is a little crazy, simply because it's outrageous what happens. And partially, if you don't, right, what was Abraham doing at one point? He's in a, he, he falls into a deep, dark sleep, just like Adam did when Eve was made, right? They're signaling something there. The, the main male character is sleeping while God is doing something over here? Huh. It's as if he's creating something new. Now, in Genesis 15, verse 17, we read this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, when darkness had descended on the world, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Where's Abraham? If Abraham is making a covenant with God, why doesn't he walk down the pieces with the flaming torch and pot? He's sleeping. The reason is because God is making the covenant on behalf of man and God. He's taking upon himself all the, all the stipulations, all the work. He's like, listen, I'm not even going to include you, Abraham, because just like Adam, you won't make it very far. What I'm going to do is I'm going to vow to you and to myself, I'm going to establish this covenant and if anybody has to shed their blood in order to keep it, it will be me. And that is what Paul means in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. He swore upon himself. Yahweh will take the curses upon himself, whether it's God or man that violates the covenant oath. He will fulfill it. It's precisely how Paul understood it. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus fulfills both God and man's covenant obligations. Because Christ fulfilled the law of Moses, fulfilling all the covenant stipulations, he was hung on a cross to fulfill the self-maledictory oath that God made with Abraham, taking upon himself all that those flames that passed through. Who are, why is it that God's represented by flames? Well, I mean, on the burning bush, what was he? When, he? when he led Israel in the wilderness, what was he? When the Spirit descends from heaven on Pentecost, what is it? So God goes down the middle of this. He says, listen, not, I will fulfill all of it. I will obey all of it. I will grab hold of all the blessing. I, too, will have poured upon me all the curses. And, and where is Abraham? He's sleeping. <laughs> now, doesn't that describe you and me? Right? We're pass, just passively sleeping through life. We're woken up to this reality in which we live and where God has fulfilled, Christ has fulfilled all the stipulations and has taken upon himself all the curses? So you mean I get to just like have life now? I just get grace now? I just get blessing now? So I don't actually have to be physically cut at all is what you're saying. 
the cutting's already been already happened. And it's not me, it's Christ. And you just you just apply that to me by putting water on me? Really? That's it? It's much better than spatchocking. Much better. Jesus' death was substitutionary. It was the shedding of his own blood so that he could be yours and you could be his. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is what the Lord Jesus says. Now, now let's think for a moment now. What, what does this... Now, we didn't do it. We were sleeping. We were sleeping. But to remain in this covenant, do you, do you think that there's anything required of us? Right? We're not talking about lambs. We're not talking about bulls that were chopped up. We're not talking about birds. We're talking about the Lord Jesus came and fulfilled all the laws, and then all the curses fell upon him, and the blood of the living God was poured out for us. Now, I'm just going to ask you, what happens if you violate that covenant? Can you? Yeah, I know. Eh, there's so much pressure. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Romans eleven nineteen through 21. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Outrage the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, there they are on Sinai. And Moses stands up and says, Listen, I put before you today life and death. And it sounded kind of, I was like, man, I'm a little taken aback. But listen to Paul's words here. How much more fear, how much more awe, how much more faithfulness do you think that this covenant requires? And because, because we live in a covenant of grace, we therefore don't, we, we, we understand grace to be this thing that's nebulous, that's free, that doesn't require anything of anybody. And, and what it ends up becoming very easily is cheap. It cost Christ what? To have you as his own. So then he comes along after, and he knows what it costs him. So he says, listen, here, I'll make a deal with you. I'll make a deal with you. I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. So put away your old self and, and put me on. 
right? Take up your cross and come, come with me. You're like, oh, okay, um, 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 do we have to chop anything? Do we have, no, I took care of that. Oh, okay, okay, do I have to obey to get in? No, no, I took care of that. Come. So, so what happens to the guy who then comes for a time and wander, you know, goes with Jesus for a bit and says, you know what, this kind of sucks. This is hard. I don't like this. I'm out of here. And he wanders off. That's why the apostles are like, go get that guy and bring him back. Go get him, right? Leave all the others because that guy does not understand what he is doing. When you violate the covenant, you think, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I've shed it again. I shed it again. And Jesus says, yes, you did. Amen. I forgive you. When you come to him and you say, listen, I did it again. He's like, oh, okay, I know. I forgive you. But if you, if you start to violate it and violate the law and violate the law and violate the relationship and you're trampling all over him and you're like, ah, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm done with you. Later, on judgment day, how do you think those people are going to be treated? And this is what we lose when we lose covenant theology. The fear and awe, the trembling, the zeal that is required in order to be in relationship and to have this God in our camp. Because when you're sitting down to confess your sins, you're confessing the fact that you've been given everything and it was completely free and you still didn't want it. You know, I know everything that you've done for me and really what I wanted was three more pancakes and two more drinks and five more women. You know, it wasn't enough what you wanted to offer me. I wanted more. But listen, listen, it turns out I'm full of shame and guilt from it. I'm broken over it. It's breaking relationships. Apparently, there's still this death running around. And, and so I'm coming to you now, and I'm saying, listen, this is what I have done. What, what can I do? Nothing. You've done all that you can because you came to me and you told me. You came to me and you confessed to me. You came to me and you repented of me, repented to me. And this is what covenant theology is all about. From the very beginning, there were these rules you had to follow and ethics you had to obey in order to stay in. And God said to Abraham, listen, I'm going to take care of all of it so that you can simply have me as your God and you will be my people. And believing it is how he does it. You believe it and it's yours. It's all yours. That's it. And then we get even into the trickier thing is, Where does the faith come from? Anyway, okay. It's a sermon for another day. Believe it. Believe it. Do you have to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. Can you? No. Don't worry. Jesus did it. Okay, well, I didn't, so then what's going to happen to me now? Well, a whole bunch of curses are going to be poured on your head, but don't worry. Jesus took care of it. You mean that it's that easy? It's that easy. So if it's that easy, why don't we do it? And if we go on not doing it, what do you think is going to happen to us? So, so those sins that you're holding on to, that, that bitterness, those lusts, that selfishness, that self-will, that self-grandizement, all of that self that you're holding on to, that you're feeding, right, that, that you're protecting, that you're building up, that you're guarding, all of that, what do you think is going to happen to that if you keep holding on to it? Because when you come to the living God, what you find out is it's, wait, that was, that was all? I just needed to tell you what I did? 
you didn't know already? No, I knew already, but it's part of the process. I, I already knew. But thank you for coming. I forgive you, and don't do it anymore. Okay. Well, that's, that's it. And, and, and if you don't understand the bloody business we've entered into, you take all of it for granted. It all becomes this cheap thing that doesn't really matter very much. You just go through the motions, and it's fine. He took care of it. I don't really know what that means. I don't know what that's required of me. And we talk like the world and act like the world, and there's no difference. But we have to understand the bloody business at the heart of this, and it's the fact that he obeyed all the rules on our behalf and took all the curses upon himself for us. Now, You go to the Lord, like Moses, and you say, who am I? Who am I? Who am I to receive this? And he answers, the one that I am with. That's who you are. You are the ones that the triune God dwells among. Because the (laughs) the, the flaming torch and the pot, where do they reside now? They descended on Pentecost, and and, and that fire, that self self sustaining fire lives in our hearts we have been brought close to him because of him you are the ones with which he now dwells why would you eat at a different table why would you have a different will why would you right why would you want more than that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus put to death therefore what is earthly in you do not quench the spirit fan into flame the gift of god you are christ's and christ is god's he's done it all and so why are you still holding on to these things why are you still putting up with it get rid of it get rid of it it's harder living with it than it is giving it up i can't even- Right, And we all know it. We've all gone through phases in our lives. We've, we've had things go on in our households and our families. And, and you think, just, just let it go. Just put it away. Just cut it off, as Jesus says. It, it's harder to have it than to give it up. And when we come and we give it up, we find what? Freedom and peace and joy. And, and the yoke is light because it's been carried by somebody else. And that is the gospel. That is what covenant is about. And, and all of the, these promises, all this hope, all this joy, it's found in Christ. All, all the blood that you, that you need is found in the cup that we drink every week. That's how easy it is now. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the blood of the covenant, Lord. The blood of your son shed for us. We know, Lord, that we are incapable of keeping the stipulations of the covenant. We know, Lord God, that there is nothing but curse for us. And we know, Lord God, that Jesus not only obeyed all the stipulations, but took upon himself all the curses, that we might, Lord, drink deeply of your grace and goodness, that we might eat of the the tree of life for eternity, that we might dwell with you, that you, Lord, dwell in our hearts. We, We are yours and You are ours because of the Lord Jesus. And I pray that as we go from here that we would remember these things, that they would not be abstract ideas, but that we would confess and be quick to repent and quick to forgive, and that we would walk in the light, and that we would follow Christ. Amen.